Welcome to Elemental Talks, a podcast that airs innovative voices from the world of marketing, design, and development. Listen to experts exploring best practices and learn how to build better websites. Rand Fishkin is without a doubt one of the most recognized figures in the digital marketing world. A tech entrepreneur, blogger, and co-founder of the popular inbound marketing and marketing analytics software Moz. He is a frequent keynote speaker at events throughout the marketing and startup world, as well as the best-selling author of Lost and Founder, a painfully honest field guide to the startup world. In this podcast, Rand discusses the problem with growth hacking, talks about the dilemma of selling a service versus selling a product, and introduces us to his recent enterprise, Spark Toro. Welcome to another episode of Elementary Talks, and with me is Matan. Hi, Matan. Hi, Ben. And today we have the pleasure to speak with one of my personal heroes, a person that influenced a lot of my knowledge of SEO, Rand Fishkin. Welcome, Rand. Hey, guys. So, Rand, I actually read your book, and it was delightful, I must say. And in your book, you share some really amazing insights that you learned as a CEO of Moz. At the same time, you've been one of the most influential figures in the SEO world. So I'm curious, how did you manage to juggle these two substantial full-time roles? <laughs> uh, uh, interesting. Yeah, I think that, you know, for me, SEO was a bit of a passion and something that I always felt could, could help the business. And so I never really thought of them as two separate things. I think that a big part of my response Uh, when I was there was impacting the SEO world for the better, right? Making that a more transparent, more uh, honest and authentic place and growing the overall market in terms of attracting people to the field, helping people to do their best work, all those kinds of things. So, you know, it was a lot of, it was two different kinds of work, right? But, but very much overlapping. Yeah, we'll get to that uh, flywheel method that you're, you discussed in the book. And really a lot of uh, things, a lot of uh, uh, the topics that you, that you cover in the book are really insightful for not just for founders, but people who manage businesses all around. So I'd like to get to the first question. Matan, do you have a question? Yes. Rand, what is the significance of transparency when scaling your company, your business? It's, it's an interesting question, McKen. So I think one of the challenges to understand with transparency is that it was a core value for me, but that doesn't mean it's the right core value for everyone, right? Uh, I think that you know, there are many companies, many founders who don't value transparency, who in fact value secrecy. Probably the most famous of these is Apple, which is one of the most successful companies of all time. And so I, I wouldn't necessarily say that transparency is what you should do or what every founder should do. But if you believe strongly in transparency, if that's something that you want in your company, then I think it can be great to adopt it as a value and to try and live that out. It certainly helps with things like recruiting and marketing and uh, being seen as unique in your field, right? It's, uh, it's an unusual trait, at least when people are truly fully transparent about the things that most other people hide, keep secret, I think that, that can help you to stand out in your field. Yeah, but I don't know about everyone doing it. 
I think there is a close correlation. I mean, we're in uh, Elementor is an open source platform and we're part of WordPress, which is also open source and GPL. And I think there is a connection here with uh, the idea of transparency, having an open garden instead of a closed garden. So, so what do you think about this trend in general uh, of transparency? A part of me worries a little bit that when it becomes trendy, it is not a real core value that people essentially use transparency to mean, well, I want to share things that'll do, that'll have a positive impact on my marketing. That's not real transparency, right? Transparency is essentially being open and honest uh, about things that other people usually try and hide and revealing the uncomfortable, sometimes shameful truths behind what's really going on in a business or in your life or in your field. And I think that that's, it's not for everyone, certainly, but it can be very, I want to say, it, it can be very positive for some companies. And it can certainly be positive if you are someone who believes in that and who doesn't feel comfortable trying to cover that stuff up. Well, uh, in your book, you definitely share some sensitive information. Well, I mean, and unexpected too, like your salary and uh, a few failures. Were there points where you were like, I'm not sure I'm going to send this to my publisher? Or I worked with my editor, uh, Nikki, at, at Penguin Random House, and there were definitely more than a few times where I'd send her you know, some pages, and she'd say, well, are you sure you, know, are you, sure you want to include this? And do you think this is going to cost you in terms of reputation or relationships with you know, people you've worked with in the past or with people you might work with in the future. Uh, and my, you know, my response to her was basically, hey, I, um, I'm passionate about sharing this stuff. So if you think that it works and it serves the reader, that was sort of her central tenet. It had to serve the reader. So there were plenty of things that I didn't put in the book that I initially drafted because, you know, Nikki and I felt like, gosh, you know, this is it's maybe interesting, like maybe I'm passionate about sharing it, but it doesn't really serve the reader. It doesn't help them uh, to understand the story. It doesn't help them in their careers or in their work. So l let's not put that in. But yeah, we, we had those conversations for sure. That, that's an interesting uh, way of, of deciding what level of transparency to go after. Yeah, I mean, I think with a book, right, just like with any content, when you're serving your audience, uh, I think that's when you get the most, the most value out of producing something. And, and I'd certainly recommend that tactic to any marketer uh, trying to make things for other people or any product builder. Definitely. And I think one of the things that I personally uh, was interested uh, when I read the, the book was when you talked about the challenge when you scaled as a company uh, in terms of having employees or individual contributors become managers and um, actually changing the, the way you treat employees uh, as opposed to managers and, and trying to level things up. Can you share a bit uh, about this, uh, this uh, dilemma? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, so essentially, I think the problem, and this happens to tons of companies who find themselves trying to scale, is that they quickly realize that their, their team is looking for growth in terms of title and responsibility. And unfortunately, 
I'm not sure if this is true worldwide, but especially here in the United States, a big part of growing your career is getting a more and more impressive title um, and managing more people, right? That's what kind of elevates you uh, to the next perceived level of importance or success in your career. And there are, you know, there are folks who uh, often in engineering, I think that's, that's one area where it's less uh, exclusively prominent, but in engineering, there'll be sort of tracks for individual contributors, right? People who are great programmers, great doers of work, but not necessarily great managers of people. And I think these are two separate skills. And the problem is that as your company scales up, people who are good at doing the work suddenly want to become managers of people who do work. And that is a completely different skill set and creates a lot of friction and tension. And so my advice to folks in the book and, and what we ended up doing at Moz to, to try and assuage this problem was to build separate tracks throughout the company where people could advance in their uh, skills, their responsibility, their level of input, their title, their salary, uh, their stock options without having to manage people. Right, that you could essentially be, you could work on the customer success team, you could work on the finance team, you could work on the marketing team, you could work in engineering or product or design and advance your career and your title, uh, your salary, your options, all those kinds of things without necessarily having people report to you. Um, and that those tracks, you know, the management and the IC track would look similar and have similar level but. I don't think that stuck around much after I left Moz, but it uh, it was certainly very, very helpful for some of those challenging growth years. We're still in the, in the field of scaling your company. And uh, one of the aspects is, of course, getting money. What are the risks when you raise money from, let's say, venture capitals or other investors? And how does that affect your independence or your decision-making? Yeah, you build very different kinds of businesses when you take investment from institutional funds, right? Like venture or private equity or, or even angels who are focused on the venture path. Uh, those types of companies, you know, their goal is essentially become billion dollar unicorns or die trying. And the success rate for companies that raise that money is very low. The success rate for people who are even able to raise that money is very low. And so you're really looking at extremely low odds of success across the board, uh, but with the idea that if you manage to do it, you know, you'll, I don't know, be ludicrously wealthy and all the media will write about you and that kind of thing. But if you are building for yourself instead, right, or building for a group of investors who care about kind of long-term profits uh, rather than you know, a, a huge IPO or an exit, then the math changes a lot. Your control over the company changes a lot. The survival rate goes dramatically up. You know, what, what is considered a success can be a wide range of things instead of only one thing. And yeah, you do maintain a lot more ownership and control over, over your future. I think... The biggest problem in our in our field in the tech entrepreneurship field is that venture capital is right for almost no one, right? It's right for maybe one percent or less of the tech companies that are started, but it's marketed to everyone, and so almost every 
everyone who starts a tech company thinks I should raise venture or I should try to raise venture. And uh, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to see that conversation shift. I think we're going to need a lot more funding sources and funding types before that happens. And we'll need some more examples of great companies that, you know, grew without uh, that type of backing, but that's, that's coming. You, you think this is coming because it seems like the, the myths that you talk about in venture capitalism uh, sort of uh, in Silicon Valley sort of uh, sticks. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, obviously they have a vested interest, right? And anyone who's an investor or, you know, kind of in the venture-backed world has a vested interest in maintaining that as the primary way that companies get funding. Um, you know, they don't really want to see lots of alternatives because that will reduce their ability to control deal flow, right? And to, to get, get into the companies that they want to get into, right? If, if entrepreneurs decide, eh, venture capital is not a great deal, I don't want to go pursue it, then instead of tens of thousands of tech entrepreneurs pitching them every week and they, them getting to choose, it has to go the other way around, right? And um, so I, I don't think that's a... It's not going to happen from the investor side of things. I think it's a, it's a culture that have to, has to shift from the ground up. And I think we're starting to see that. There are many examples of companies out there that have you know, not raised money or that uh, raise small amounts of money from angel investors and, and focus on being profitable instead. You know, I'm thinking of folks like MailChimp and Buffer and Wistia and... Uh, base camp and the movements on the investment side, right? Things like IndyVC and uh, zebras versus unicorns and tiny seed, right? Which is something that that my wife and I invested in. So uh, it's a it's an early movement, but I, I'm seeing some progress. Yeah, we actually interviewed the CEO of uh, Wistia, uh, Chris Savage, uh, recently, and we talked about. Uh, uh, all those hard decisions that they have had uh, to make. I think there's also a, a myth in regards to, and you mentioned this in the book, product versus service companies. Uh, and I know many of our listeners are actually, you know, either service companies or service providers. So like, how do you, I mean, you give a lot of detail why actually service companies makes a lot of sense. So can you share a bit about the difference between the two, two ways? Yeah, I mean, simplest way to think of it, right, is a product company makes a product, either software or physical goods, right, and, and sells many of the same things over and over. A, a services company tends to do consulting or, or offer their time in exchange for money. They usually have hourly rates or project-based rates. And investors don't really like services companies. And as a result, the tech field kind of as a whole, you know, looks down on them or, or treats them as like second class entrepreneurs, which is ridiculous because most uh, services companies have a higher rate, higher survival odds. They often make their founders more money and they are often great places to work uh, that feature sometimes less of the abusiveness that um, tech product companies have been associated with, especially the bigger ones. Uh, that's not to say that everything about them is perfect, right? But 
I think that they just get an unfair reputation for being uninteresting companies exclusively because they're uninteresting to uh, venture funds. And that's, that's a silly way to look at things, right? If you're an entrepreneur or if you're someone who's looking at joining a company, you don't really care whether the venture investors are going to make their billions, right? You care about what, whether you're going to have a good job and a good life and a good chance of success and a good paycheck and a profitable business and, you know, security. And those things can all be achieved uh, often with um, higher odds than uh, with a, with a services versus product business. That makes sense. I, I mean, I think, People uh, looking for a career move also needs to need to listen to your story and uh, <laughs> get some tips there. Yeah, I'd just be. I mean, I think that the the key is just not to be biased by biased perspectives, right? Like, I I don't really have a horse in this race, right? I have no reason to suggest that you should go with the services business or you should go with the product business. But a lot of the people who talk about product versus services do have a horse in that race, right? And they, they, they have an agenda. They have a reason that they don't miss this. And um, I think, unfortunately, that's biased the entrepreneurship world in an unhealthy way. You mentioned in the book uh, a really interesting experience, I think, in terms of listening to your customer, where you actually traded places with uh, another CEO of a service providing uh, company. Can, can you tell the, that story? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a, that's a tough one to describe in uh, in, yeah, in just a few like sentences, but magical. Basically, I <laughs> right, right. Well, and yeah, I mean, I think for folks who are interested, there's a there's a good blog post about it, and there's a good uh, you know there's a chapter in the book about it. But yeah, I swapped places with the CEO of a services company, um, uh, Sear Interactive, which is a consulting firm out in. Uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and you know their CEO came and worked at Moz for a week. Took my role as CEO there, and we, yeah, basically lived each other's lives, answered each other's email, lived at each other's houses. You know, had all of each other's obligations, and it was a fascinating experience, right, to see into someone else's life and to sort of um, realize what you know what was actually going on in one of at the time, Moz's customers' businesses and you know, what, what mattered to them in terms of the product and what their challenges were with their own clients and customers, uh, their team dynamics, all those kinds of things, right? It's a, just a great exercise in empathy. And there's loads of takeaways that, that folks can read about if they want. But um, yeah, very unique experience. Definitely it's something I would maybe love to do again someday. I mean, I, I heard about surveys and, and uh, you know, phone calls, but you went the extra mile. That's, that's great, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, small sample size, but uh, extreme level of exposure. And I wanted to talk to you a bit about, I mean, uh, let, let's, let's get closer to topics, uh, closer to marketing. So you talk about the difference between growth hacking and, uh, and the flywheel idea. Uh, and... You mentioned there are ways where growth hacking can actually work. So what's the problem with growth hacking? I think growth hacking has a real short-termism problem where it's essentially looking for things that might temporarily work but often have legal, ethical, and or uh, problematic externalities associated. And I think this is why growth hacking is 
embraced it a few years more for, oh, well, actually, we're looking for growth marketing, not growth hacking, right? We don't want to find one temporary short-term hack that works for a little while, which was kind of all the rage, you know, between maybe four and seven years ago. And instead, we want to find sustainable long-term strategies that keep building on each other and that's the the flywheel concept is just that right that essentially it takes a lot of energy to get that flywheel moving but as you continue to contribute marketing efforts toward it each revolution of the flywheel gets easier and easier and you you build up some inertia around your marketing practice which can have very sustainable long-term healthy impacts on a business and uh, of course, we can talk with you without uh, talking a little bit about SEO-related topics. So we would like to hear what are the latest and greatest things that we should know regarding Google Updates. Oh man, I mean, I am—you know—I'm no longer in the SEO world. I, I left Moz a little over 18 months ago, and my focus these days with SparkToro is um, outside of the SEO realm. So while you know, sort of broad-scale analysis. I do not try and keep up to date on you know what happened last week with the Google update or you know what their latest I can't remember they changed they made a change maybe last week with like no follow and yeah you see you do you're still in the game I mean i I get I'll get a lot of stuff through my Twitter feed, but I am not i I would point you to other folks if you know keeping up to date with SEO is is what you're looking for my My passion around SEO still exists for sure. Uh, I still have interest there, but I, I'm much more interested in the macro level, like what's going on in the, in the broad, broad web marketing world, how much traffic is Google still sending, where, how can I diversify my traffic? What are the right kinds of ways to do that? And obviously SparkToro is, is very focused on uh, this idea that Google traffic is diminishing or dangerous. So, I mean, the fundamental idea behind SparkToro Toro is that uh, it's a it's a software tool that hasn't launched yet it's still in in private beta but we're, we're hoping to launch sometime in the next few months uh, and the you know the concept behind it is that we want to help marketers find the sources of influence for their audience so that they can go target that audience in the places that actually reach them Right. So we, we want to be able to you know, tell you, hey, these are the podcasts that your audience is listening to. These are the YouTube channels that they subscribe to. Here are the people and publications they follow on social. Here are the websites that they visit. Here are the events and conferences that they go to. Uh, here are characteristics that that audience has you know, from their self-described bios and uh, the words and phrases that they use in their content, those kinds of things, right? So that you can get very quickly at a glance looks at, hey, this is what my online audience looks like. This is how they behave. This is who and what they pay attention to and follow. And, you know, this, feel, this, this practice of getting audience intelligence at your fingertips is, is pretty new. Historically, you know, you would have had to run large scale, expensive, long uh, lead time surveys in order to get this kind of information. And, you know, we can deliver it in whatever, three to five seconds, however long a search takes, you know, right in the interface. And that's just from crawling all of these tens of millions of profiles on the web and aggregating all the data together. And so I'm these days. That's interesting. So actually crawling the social platforms and seeing how people are 
how much they're active on them and uh, what conferences they they attended on on meetup these sort of uh, data yeah those those kinds of things right so yeah we would look we basically look at both the social web and the broader web right so we might uh, crawl profiles yeah on meetup on linkedin on reddit and youtube and twitter and facebook and instagram whatever public profiles are available and then we aggregate those together to sort of you know create an individual profile and then we don't show the personally identifiable information right we don't care about name or address or whatever but we do want to be able to say oh okay these people are uh, whatever work in health insurance or these people uh, are interested in gardening or these people are interested in material sciences or these people are interested in chemical engineering uh, or they describe themselves and then we can show you a bunch of data about whatever 30,000 data scientists that we have in our database aggregated together and show you oh well they follow these people they subscribe to these channels they uh, use these words and phrases in their bio Right, that at a glance audience intelligence data. Well, I think uh, I mean the, the, there's a connection uh, with both startups that you kind of uh, I guess love to help marketers. <laughs> I do, I do. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to stay in the marketing realm, but sort of move a little outside of SEO. And I have this, I have this broad sense that SEO is becoming um, more and more competitive, which makes it more challenging, and it's also becoming a fight not only against your competitors, but against Google themselves, as Google keeps trying to eat more and more traffic for themselves, right? Compete with more and more publishers with their own products, answer more questions in the search results. And so as, the, as that trend is happening, I think that marketers have to be looking outside of just Google or Google and Facebook to where can I spend my time and my dollars to reach my audience intelligently. So you think it's like uh, spreading your investment through different... Uh... You know, stocks. <laughs> Broadening your stock. Uh, yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So, Rand, how can people follow you and read your content uh, and join uh, SparkToro? Yeah, you are welcome to visit our website, sparktoro.com. You can sign up for the product updates there uh, via email. And I am most active on Twitter, where I'm at Randfish. Cool. It's been a pleasure reading your book and talking to you. Uh, and I love uh, what you're doing um, and uh, everything you, you teach about founding a business and, uh, and marketing. So keep it up. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And thanks for having me on today, guys. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.